Hi, this is Roger Green, host of the Surfing the Next Tsunami podcast. We are offering two separate conversations from this week's episode, a call to action on MLK Day, supporting disadvantaged minorities in managing liver health. In this conversation, the first one, Don Cryer and Louise Campbell discuss the challenges disadvantaged minority patients in the U.S., U.K., and Australia face in managing their lives to maximize liver health. The discussion covers access to the healthcare system and healthy lifestyle information and knowledge. While healthcare and lifestyle challenges are significant, there are real points of light in all three countries. Some of these are generated through the government, but the most exciting ones bubble up through the culture and from advocates in the affected communities. I found Donna's discussion of community-based healthy eating initiatives in the U.S. to be particularly revealing. Enjoy. Drug developers, investors, researchers, and corporate executives wrestle weekly to understand what is happening in commercial development of NASH medications. Join hepatology researcher and key opinion leader Stephen Harrison, liver wellness advocate Louise Campbell, and forecasting and pricing guru Roger Green as they discuss the issues affecting the evolving NASH market from their own unique perspectives on the Surfing the NASH Tsunami podcast. I asked Donna to start us off, take several minutes, and discuss what you see as the overarching challenges that underserved minorities in the U.S. face in managing their health and dealing with the healthcare system. So why don't you just kick us off and give us lots of things to uh, think about, as you always do. Thank you so much. You know, this morning, there were two very early texts that I got that I think are, are relevant to set the context for this discussion. The first was that access to the Martin Luther King Jr. Memorial was closed for security. So no one is allowed to visit and pay homage, but also no one is allowed to potentially destroy this monument of an icon um, in whose honor we take some time and thought, hopefully in service today. So I want to thank having also just recently come from driving through the city a bit and observed the Army, Secret Service, National Guard, Border Control Protection, uh, Customs and Border Control, the several different branches of armed services folks from around the country who have come to the nation's capital to ensure that there is a safe and secure transition of, of power and that both the official Washington, the capital Washington, but also the city of Washington, D.C., the District of Columbia, and its citizens, um, of which I have been one for about 25 years, are safe. And so I, I want to express my gratitude for them for upholding our ability to have free discussions, to exercise all the aspects of our democracy, and to continue to move forward peacefully for the things that Dr. King was challenging our, our country to aspire and to live up to. So that was the first text this morning. The second was that the criteria for vaccinations in Washington, D.C. Um, were changed yet again, and that everyone from every ward over the age of 65 were eligible to sign up for a vaccine. And so I was very quickly trying to sign my mother up. I'd been doing tech maintenance, so I had her iPad and, and various things. And so as quickly as my fingers could fly across the, the keyboard and respond, from early this morning, I kept trying in vain, as it turned out, to set and, and confirm a vaccine appointment for her. Very shortly afterwards, I, I got another text that said all the appointments were, were, were taken. And so it's very unsettling that it was, it was great that so many people wanted a vaccine. People are crying out, um, you know, for that. I know all the 
questions and conversations before about vaccine hesitancy and people want to receive this this vaccine. So, Roger, to your, you know, to your, you know, reportage, um, you know, a plan to expand vaccine access um, into communities, into using a variety of settings is absolutely necessary to protect everyone and, and to be able to, you know, reopen the world. And so I think on the twin thoughts of having an environment and a structure in a culture of constantly moving towards the best version of ourselves, the best version of America, this best version of of democracy, recognizing in truth that we are not there yet. And the very real, very hard work that will need to be done so that it's more than just pretty words, more than just an aspiration. But what does it take from leadership and on the ground and to that very last mile to ensure that people not just have you know health insurance or the vaccine or a medication exists, but that they can actually get it in their arms, in their bloodstreams, affecting their lives. I think that is the conversation, not only that all people of color certainly have, although we feel it, experience it more, more intensely and with more struggle, but for so many people across uh the United States. Martin Luther King III reminded us that his his father's struggle and 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 last uh, marches and speeches were around poverty and income inequality, and that there were 25 million people in living in poverty in the United States at the time of his father's assassination, and there are 40 million living in poverty now. So. When you think about the levels of stress and stigma and barriers to care that are facing 40 million plus Americans, we have some real work to do. So if I were just to lay them out for our discussion, I would say that, you know, for patients with, with NASH, you know, you face a system, I, I, I'm reluctant to call it that, they face an environment where the jobs that they may have are insecure if they have them. The safety net and unemployment insurance, I've actually disallowed my staff from using the term safety net because I do not believe there is one functioning in the United States at this time. So the ability to access healthy foods from a grocery store in your neighborhood at a price that you can afford is limited. There may not be hospitals or health systems or clinics in your neighborhood that are accessible in hours that you can access. There's a 97% chance that you will not find a physician or, or a clinician of color who shares a similar background, who maybe understands the stresses and the stories that, that you're telling that may influence how you perceive health and uh, want to access health. And then we get to the issues of no drug being available and, and you know, no supportive care and insurance being challenged and, and all of those things that everybody has to deal with. But you know, if we haven't addressed the underlying poverty and the stress of that poverty, which causes inflammation and is a health risk in and of itself, then when we start to layer fancy things around drug development and all, we really aren't fully addressing the problem. So I'm going to end this section of that. I'm so grateful, Roger, for you to invite me on to talk by with a recommendation for, for reading. A very good friend of mine, Daniel Dawes, 
who uh, is director of the Satcher Health Leadership Institute at Morehouse School of Medicine. And that's after uh, Dr. David Satcher. Daniel Dawes has written several books, but one is called The Political Determinants of Health. And I, I would say that's definitely recommended reading for anybody who truly wants to understand both the depths of this issue and try to be part of solutions to overcome these challenges. Thanks, Donna. That's great. I will make sure that we have a uh, link to Amazon or somewhere where folks who want to can find or purchase that book on the website when we post this episode. Louise, how is life in the UK and or Australia for the underserved minorities that you work with in those two cultures similar to and different from what Donna was just describing? The first thing that I think we do have an advantage in the UK, and that's we have a national health service. It's free to everybody at um, source. So I think irrespective of our ethnicity divides and split, everybody can access healthcare if and when they need it and if they want to access it. I think there are difficulties in some areas for people to access healthcare either because of their ethnicity or because of their trust of some of the services and the systems. But I think genuinely we don't have an issue of people having to come in, clarify their status, talk about funding and where that's going to come from. So I think we have great advantages in the UK, which is unlike Australia, which is similar in some ways to the NHS, but also semi-US based on Medicare. It's a little bit more accessible than the American system would appear to be straight off, but it's less accessible than the UK. Interestingly enough, if you look at Aboriginal and the Indigenous population of Australia, they're actually more likely to access healthcare in the remote areas than they do in the inner city areas and the more built up areas. Now, I don't know why that would be, whether or not it's the whole process of having access to it so you don't actually use it, or whether or not because a lot of the rural systems can be based on visiting specialists, that when it's in town, you make an effort to access the system. So I think we have two very different ways that people can access services. Thanks for that as well. So I had two thoughts as I was listening to Donna about things I've seen in my own life in the past month that I would just like to throw out and then Stephen next set of questions yours. So Donna, first of all, the state of New Jersey has thrown COVID vaccines open to anybody who would like to have it done there, whether you live in the state or not. It's not a requirement that you live in New Jersey to be vaccinated in New Jersey. So having learned that and being a um, extremely healthy but demographically high-risk individual, I went to see what could happen. And of the 50 cent, and I happen to live on the New Jersey-Pennsylvania border, just on the Pennsylvania side, of the 50 locations closest to us, 46 of them had no availability for the next six weeks. The four that did were two in the city of Trenton in, the, in, in minority neighborhoods, one in the city of Camden, which was just... 50 miles away in a minority neighborhood and one in the middle of an ultra-Orthodox community um, in Ocean County. Every 
everything else was completely booked. I thought that was troubling because we know who's more likely to get sick. We know who's more likely to have a hard time with the disease. And yet those were the places that I could get to most quickly. In fact, I could have had a vaccine next week, except that I was going to be in Texas for two weeks and I wasn't going to do this until I was done quarantining. So that was one. And the second was when you talked about the social safety net, I, I thought for a while, and I think we've talked about this a little bit on the, off on the podcast, about at least in terms of food choices, it's virtually become a social unsafety net that what food stamps in the States encourage, well, enables people to pay for is food with minimal nutritional value and it's really bad for you. A lot of salt, a lot of sugar, a lot of fats, a lot of things people don't need and not enough encouragement to eat healthily given that healthier things tend to cost more. Uh, now, we've had an ebb and flow on that. If you remember, Reagan tried to classify ketchup as a vegetable 35 years ago for school lunch programs and Michelle Obama tried to bring vegetables into everybody's diets more recently and then um, the Trump administration fought that. But I'm wondering the different ways in which government isn't doing everything it can do to support these communities and the ways in which it's doing things that don't help but maybe even hurt and how those two are intertwined in the minds of folks who work with and or live in those communities. I think perhaps we've made it overly complicated. So, you know, at a very high level, um, we've been tracking that uh, NIH has moved the division on, on, on nutrition out of NIDDK into larger NIH in a sort of a trans-institute discussion and position itself. And so it's still very much a work in progress. But I think that that is a positive thing to take a very holistic view of nutrition research. I also think that there will be implications for the Department of Agriculture in which many programs do exist. And there is an element of racial reconciliation that does need to be accomplished there if Secretary Terry Vilsack is to be more successful than he was uh, the last time he was secretary. And I, I do have high hopes that that will occur. But we really need to ask the question, I think, where do people learn about food? And they learn about it in their homes, in their churches, you know, passed down from grandparents and parents, you know, to, to children. So are there models and mentors and very hands-on examples and classes of people who are eating in a healthy way in the community, from the community, determined by the community. I think that, you know, community gardens, you know, run by community members are successful because people see it grown by their neighbors in the plot next door to them. You know, one of my law school classmates is actually a James Beard Award winner and his evocations of Southern traditions and connecting it back to West African roots and healthy habits and, and reconnecting modern day African-Americans to a a healthy history of eating so that um, our heritage is not just in various pork products, but in different types of greens and healthful foods. And I think people reimagining themselves in their culture as healthy eaters will have far more effect on people than nutrition science and uh, you know what the latest supplement can or cannot do for you and sort of what passes for wellness in a lot of our sort of elite conversations. And so the work that Adrian Miller is doing in the soul of, of African cooking and things will lead to far more healthy people in healthy communities than uh, a Surgeon General's report or an NIH study, although I support the latter as well. Certainly, that makes a lot of sense. Louise, you're looking at different cultures with different food histories when you talk about 
South Indians or indigenous people in Australia. What works or do you think needs to happen there within the communities or what kinds of support should people get that would encourage them or enable them or inspire them to find a healthier path to eating or better things to eat? And what are the things that the government is doing right now that are either helping or hindering? You talk a fair amount about the food lobbies and the soda lobbies and, and, and influence that they've had. What forms does that take and what needs to happen around that? There is obviously an awful lot of lobbying by food, alcohol and sugar drink industries to ensure that their products are provided throughout any country and particular Australia. If you go out remotely in Australia, it is far cheaper to purchase poor foods or poor quality foods. Um, we may all like them. We might like them occasionally. Some people like them a lot, but they're, they're poor foods. There was recently, and I haven't seen the outcome of the inquiry as to the pricing of food remotely for indigenous populations, whereby their only real option was to buy really poor quality vegetables at exorbitant prices, many much of which they couldn't afford, or to buy cheap fast food, high fat, high saturated sugars. There was some concern, but I think a lot of work has been done by the indigenous population themselves in remote communities to improve their own food security and diet and about education. But if you look at some of the figures that have come out, they do a, a national Aboriginal and Torres Island a health measure survey that was done in 2012-2013 and then repeated and published last year in 1819. And it was quite frightening that if you compare the surveys, overweight and obesity rates in the indigenous Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander community in the ages of 2 to 14 increased from 30% of that population to 37%. If you look to the age of 15, 15 plus, it went from 66% of that age group to 71% were now obese. Hypertension rose by 2% from 5 to 7%. 46% of individuals now had at least one chronic health condition that was a significant problem. This is Australia-wide, so it's not a breakdown of state, but smoking had improved. People who never smoked increased. Alcohol consumption for those who drink more than four standard units in one sitting fell by 3% from 57 to 54% of that population who were drinking that 18 plus years. Non-medical substance use was up though from 22 to 28%. Sugar-sweetened drinks were drunk every day in the age groups of 2 to 14 by at least 20% of those children. In the 15 plus age group, it was 24%. So nearly a quarter of all people over the age of 15 who are Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islanders were drinking sugar fatted drinks by 2018-19. Yet only 6% of two to 14 year olds were having fruit and vegetables in a daily quantity that's recommended. Now Australia do seven at the last count. It was seven portions of fruit and vegetables. The UK, we do five, but it was only 3% of those over the age of 15 were getting their daily intake of fruit and veg. And three quarters of 
Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders live in Western Australia and very remotely in Western Australia. So it's not a case that these are just all city and urban populations. But only 11% of 15-year-olds were getting exercise of over 15-year-olds. So only 11%. And 57%, not surprisingly, of 2 to 17-year-olds were seeing dentists in the last 12 months. So it's a problem. It is very much a problem that the Indigenous population themselves have to address and look at and are very keen that it does come from within. But actually it is a government and local territory governors, local stores, it is their responsibility to enable people to have access to diets that allow them to lead healthier lives. Because the diets that they're currently accessing are only going to increase health disparity. Indigenous populations die 10 years on average younger than non-Indigenous populations. But there's a national guide that was published in 2018 by NACHO, which is the National Aboriginal Community Controlled Health Organisation. And it's all about healthcare and an evidence base for looking at preventative health assessment. But when I looked at that document, it's beautifully written, it's a lovely document, but very rare does it mention liver disease. And the only part that liver disease is predominantly mentioned is when you get to the cancer, and it's only a subpart of cancer. So the only time we're looking realistically for liver disease within an Aboriginal health document was actually when it got to primary liver cancer. So we've missed a lot of opportunities to access those populations earlier. Fatty liver disease, obesity is rising, but we're not assessing for fatty liver disease. But in 11 out of the 17 chapters on the health categories, you could have looked for liver disease because it relates to childhood obesity, it relates to sedentary lifestyle, it relates to diet. So a lot of the other chapters you could have used to highlight liver disease, which therefore, when it's only being highlighted in cancer, is a problem. And I cannot see documents that don't look at the rising mortality in liver cancer and liver-related disorders and without addressing it in a document, for me, is, is a problem because I think liver disease is the, and cirrhosis is the ninth leading cause of death in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders, yet it's not in their preventative health documentation. But in comparison to the non-Indigenous population, where it's only the 23rd cause of death. So a lot of work has to be done because, as I say, otherwise I really can't see people turning around Indigenous health if they don't get access to proper diets, less sugar, and start to have a, a less sedentary lifestyle. But better health communication and they know how to eat properly. They just need better access, I suppose. You know, Louise, you bring up a really important point, several. One is we can't change what we don't measure. So unless liver health is a part of public health and healthcare planning, we can't even begin to address it. If we don't have the right surveillance in place and we can't count and account for the scope and the scale of the issues, we can't create appropriate solutions. And 
I also think that to be able to target and, and tailor appropriate solutions, we do need to have appropriate racial and ethnic and demographic data. Um, there are often discussions about doing away with that type of tracking, but the problem didn't come in a race-neutral way, and so the solutions cannot be delivered in a race-neutral way. Otherwise, they won't be effective. I, I think that's you know particularly relevant to talk about today. And as we're talking, I, I wanted to bring this discussion back around to job and work and, and particularly diversity in health professions as it can advance healthcare liver health. And Stephen, I know you have been such a great mentor and supporter and champion of many minority physicians and hepatologists, you know, pulling them all the way through to hepatology to several levels deep into medical training. And I, I want to commend you for that because I, I think that people seeing themselves in, in medicine, in the healthcare professions, and I think people having health professionals going back into their communities and, and being that person who answers questions and navigates within families and, and, and churches and, you know, everywhere, you know, people are and, and maybe have a question is so important. And so, you know, I want to com- commend you for the work that you've been doing throughout your career to support diversity in in the health professions and, and those jobs and trainings and, the, you know, the struggles and stresses that minority physicians often face in their in their medical training. Donna, that's, a, that's an excellent point. And when you started to speak about Stephen, I was thinking about things I know that he's done on that front as well. We hope you've enjoyed this conversation. If you have any questions or comments about the content of the conversation or the entire episode, please send an email to questions at surfingnash.com. We are releasing two total conversations from this episode. Our next new episode will release on Thursday, January 28th. Stay safe. See you on the podcast. Bye-bye now. Drug developers, investors, researchers, and corporate executives wrestle weekly to understand what is happening in commercial development of NASH medications. Join hepatology researcher and key opinion leader Stephen Harrison, liver wellness advocate Louise Campbell, and forecasting and pricing guru Roger Green as they discuss the issues affecting the evolving NASH market from their own unique perspectives on the Surfing the NASH Tsunami podcast.